0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast, where we explore life's big questions with seasoned seekers and scholars and everything in between. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and I have the distinct pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Ian Witcher, who is a professor at the Department of Religion at the University of Manitoba. Um, I spoke with him on the New Books in Indian Religions podcast about his scholarship, and he had such interesting and rich views of both the uh, the power of the ancient Indian uh, yogic school of thought and also its applicability to modern life that I thought we should continue that conversation here on the Life Wisdom podcast. Uh, Ian, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Raj.
1: Now, why don't you just recap uh, for our audience. You know, what is your primary research? The primary
0: research, um, insofar as scholarship goes, it has been really investigating um, uh, into what I would call the heart of uh, the classical teachings on yoga. And um, being well-informed of the development of what we might call South Asian Indian spirituality prior to around the time of the Common Era, Vedas, Upanishads, Buddhism, Jainism, and so on. Being appreciative of of the rich cultural fabric of the Indian subcontinent where yoga uh, was rooted and uh, appreciating all the um, different teachings, on yoga prior to the classi- classical systemization of yoga around the second or third century of the common era. And then looking at yoga in in the light of, um, of course, uh, my own practice, but uh, using scholarship as a, using a theory as a, an authentic, um, backdrop to um, really connecting with tradition and also to being uh, present, uh, as it were, in the here and now with how that tradition is speaking today. How How is this coming through today? And um, being aware of how it's been interpreted in the past through a very rich body of uh, scholarly yogis there's no question about it. Some of the great great yogis were great scholars who, who of course knew that, that uh, studying the tradition, applying the mind, uh, giving your heart and applying the mind fully as much as possible, um, being attentive to thought, being attentive to feeling and emotion, being attentive to the whole movement of, of the mind um, and working with that um so i've I've tried to be um, uh, true to the the tradition as I see it, and at the same time to realize that in the twenty first century, uh, everything always needs to be updated as we move along in time. Yoga has always been reinventing its its uh, itself in uh, how it presents itself uh, according to the needs of the time and how, for example, is Patanjali speaking to us today? And that became really important. And it, 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 was, um, it was not just a scholarly calling. It was a, a personal, uh, deep, uh, spiritual calling that, um, that just brought me in. <laughs> so that was the real motivation behind it. So I'm fortunate that I, I am, I must say this, I'm very, very fortunate and uh, grateful. That I have had the opportunity to um, function as a scholar in the light of this whole calling. Um, uh, for me, uh, the two scholarship and, and um, self exploration experience uh, can easily go hand in hand. You just have to be willing to um, to um, dive in and be honest with oneself. And uh, honest, honesty becomes almost the unspoken ethic as we go along, you know, keeping the honesty there. And so I, I get great uh, satisfaction, as it were, in being able to um, express and communicate um, um, certainly something of the great uh, yoga tradition uh, as it was rooted classically. and. How that may be uh, expressed today for uh, for for people.
1: There are a great number of themes that come to mind as I hear you speak, and as I'm sure you're probably uh, well aware, or at least surmise. I don't script uh, interview questions. I have a sense in mind of some areas to probe because I really value the organic nature of lived experience and live conversation and real conversation. The reason why I state this is because um, it seems to me that many of the uh, philosophical, spiritual, um, narratological traditions of ancient India, they're predicated upon um, living, like living wisdom traditions. And they're updated and renovated age after age for that purpose. And I had this series of questions in the tutorial I was giving earlier today at the Oxford Center of Hindu Studies about whether or not the Bhagavad Gita was an interpolation. And the question I asked was whether or not the person had a smartphone and whether that smartphone had an upgraded software or the original software from when they purchased it. And so the, the idea of interpolation, the idea of degradation, it's, it's, it's really the opposite in that um, in the power of these traditions are there a malleability and relevance in the, 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 the manner in which they lend themselves, to be understood a new age after age. Now, uh, before I ask my first substantive question, would you agree with that notion of the organic nature of these traditions?
0: Yes, yes, entirely I would, yes. And we always have to be careful uh, not to freeze uh, tradition. And uh, in other words, sometimes it needs to be unfrozen from its old uh, interpretations um and that's been true uh throughout the history of of any spiritual tradition
1: so yeah the first uh main um issue that i'd like to tackle is this what may be considered a dual citizenship that you have uh you have a passport at the academy and you have the passport in indian spirituality or practice uh this 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 tension between being a scholar of a tradition and being a practitioner of a tradition. For some, it may not be a tension, for many, it is a tension in our discipline of religious studies. Um, and I would love for you to comment on the interplay between the spiritual relationship to the material and the scholarly or academic relationship with the material with respect to, um, 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 is it such that, um uh, being a practitioner might be a liability, might being a practitioner make you a better scholar? Should scholars necessarily be practitioners of the tradition? I would just love your thoughts on that, um, both in terms of um, you know your own positioning, but also in terms of what that may illumine for the field at large.
0: Well, often there's a, um, a scission between theory and practice. And some Fall prey to feeling superior, uh, theory is superior, and others that practice uh, in itself is superior to theory. And um, when I look at what the word philosophy means and how I understand true philosophy, it's always, it's, it's, it seems to me to be meant to be transformative. And I saw this kind of theme of transformative philosophy in India, where um, theory and practice go hand in hand. In other words, they're, they're integrated. They're, they're part of this, the same fabric of life experience, um, giving form to experience, giving uh, communicating uh, experience, how experience is, is um, attempted to be captured by words uh, is a great skill. Uh, and um, sometimes we have to be careful uh, not to get caught in the reification of word and, uh, and uh, mistaking um, certain understandings. For example, just the word transcendence, which is a word that we, we often Come across in meditative, contemplative traditions to transcend. To transcend what? To transcend the world. What does it mean? To, why? What is the teaching? Transcending the world. In order to be spiritual, you have to transcend the world. And um, so, it, you know, just the word transcend. So there is a transcendent aspect of yoga that's very important and uh but it's not an end in itself to transcend. There's also the imminence of of life, the you know, uh, in other words, what is what are we being asked? what are we what are what is being pointed to when we undertake a spiritual practice? and therefore, um. As a, When I got into scholarship, I was initially a little bit hesitant to go on. And when I got into Ph.D. research, I realized there was a, there's there's more and more a rigor here, an integrity to it. And so I thought, we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater um, as a spiritual practitioner. It's very easy to just start to throw uh, out the uh the intellect, and say, well, I, I have to transcend the intellect anyway. <laughs> but the point is, what, what is the intellect? So I began to discover that in the yogic tradition, the word for intellect, intelligence, buddhi, is actually the key to spiritual enlightenment. <laughs> in, you, you, arguably, even in the Bhagavad Gita, the teachings on buddhi yoga, which aren't as famous as as the, the other three main yogas, the knowledge yoga, jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, devotional yoga, and karma yoga, the yoga of action, there's the Buddhi yoga, which arguably is what integrates these three together. So the term buddhi started coming at me, you know, and I began to see that yes, there is an integrity to uh being a scholar as a practitioner and integrity to being a practitioner as a scholar. But even beyond that, there's an integrity to life that this opened me into. In other words, it was a jumping off point for for being a license to be a real person in whatever I'm doing, to be free in what I'm doing. And I'm grateful for that. And uh, the scholarship helped to anchor me in that sense of integrity, and scholarship isn't for everyone. I mean, we're not saying that. It just was my way of of, of entering into and continuing to to be able to to nuance and appreciate the the um, the play of 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 life, the play of of thought, and uh, in in greater and greater freedom. So at the same, at, at, therefore, um, although it is, it can be understood as uh, being separate uh, worlds, uh, absolutely not. And uh, scholarship and, and spiritual discipline, and no, it really, it really depends on your relationship to what you're doing. I, I suppose it comes through, um, it does come through hard work. There's no doubt about it, whether on the side of spiritual practice, on the side of uh, scholarship, because scholarship isn't just about reading things. It's also um, being able to communicate those ideas. And so there was a calling to communicate as well. Um, There was a calling to write and to speak and so on and so forth. So, um, So I've partly addressed your 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 question.
1: <laughs> the the uh, the questions are only ever generative, never uh, conclusive or exhaustive, and so it's always to see uh, what are we after? We're after life wisdom, the meaning of life, life's big questions. These are issues that are to be interrogated and deliberated until the end of time. These are not issues that can be put into um, sound bites for posterity, right? And so. Um, I, I like what you say about the interplay between scholarship and spirituality and that they both involve hard work. Uh, what comes to mind is a long time ago when I was trying to decide whether I wanted to take the scholarly route or to continue traditional exegesis. So these texts for the sake of transformation, as, as you aptly put it. Um, someone very wisely said to me, if Shankaracharya were alive in our times, he would surely have a doctorate in something. And it just blew my mind open because there was such wisdom there. Um, enough about me and my couch time, more about you and your <laughs> your publication. You mentioned in passing um, the word integrity, and of course integrity was crucial to one of your most influential works, the integrity of the yoga darshana. Could you share with the audience you know, your take on yoga philosophy and what sort of new novel intriguing about the way in which you interpret uh, Patanjali's view and the way it's commonly interpreted, particularly in the larger yoga circuit in the West?
0: Yes. Um, well, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra is probably, has become known more through its teachings on the Ashtanga yoga, the eight limb path of yoga given in the... In, uh, the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra. But that is really um, part, it's only part of what Patanjali is, is actually teaching. And you could say what Patanjali was teaching is given in the first four sutras of chapter one. And then he takes the whole rest of the, of the Yoga Sutra uh, book, including four chapters, just to tease out the meaning of what he's saying. And there's those four, first four sutras. And the, the Ashtanga yoga is, um, has become uh, the sort of uh, package term for what classical yoga is about, but it's only a part of it. And in some ways, you could even say it's preliminary. It's preliminary work to set the stage for deeper revelation into life. I would say, ongoing revelation into life. Um, and it has to do with definitely a quality of, of mind. Uh, and when we say mind, we also can include heart in that. Because in yoga, um, mindfulness and heartfulness um, are part of the same uh, category of, of our human existence. The term for that is chitta. C-I-T-T-A, and it's often been translated as mind, but mind as an umbrella term for our, uh, the nature of intelligence and the intellect, our sense of self, called ahamkara, our sense of self, and um, our individuality, in other words, and also uh, how the senses function, and uh, are connected to the world at large through the manas. So, this chitta becomes a very important term, and it's understood in itself as not being um, conscious in itself. It needs the presence of this pure consciousness in order to become activated and... Uh, function as consciousness and function as consciousness. So in the classical yoga, there is often been a um, a dualistic understanding of life where there is a pure consciousness on one side of the fence, which is our true nature, the true nature of self being um, called pure consciousness or purusha or the seer, the inner seer. And, there, and then there is all that that can be seen, that can be experienced, which um, is not consciousness itself, but you could call it um, existence as we normally experience it, as an object. In other words, the term for that is that which issues forth, which, which manifests, and that's called Prakriti, that which issues forth. And Prakriti is the whole multidimensional nature of the universe, from the subtlest to the most obvious, grossest aspect, including the five elements of life. So our mind and body are considered to be in themselves, not consciousness, but considered to be, um, they're not conscious in themselves. They need the presence of pure consciousness. So pure consciousness is always present in life, where nothing would be going on. So it is that which is forever present and is unborn and undying. And that is said to be our true nature. Patanjali calls it the the seer. The true nature of the seer is the very power of seeing or a knowing awareness of life. And that which can be seen or known is um, what we normally misconstrue ourselves or our true nature, but that is the mind and the body self, which is really a manifestation, which arises in the presence of consciousness, and we normally mistake our our self for being this functioning of consciousness, rather than the essence of consciousness, which is pure consciousness. So along the lines of that. Many uh, interpretations of classical yoga have said, "Well, when Patanjali defines yoga classically as being the cessation of the the functioning of ordinary uh, self or the functioning of ordinary awareness, the, what he calls chitta vritti niroda, the niroda, the cessation of the mind and its its uh, functioning." Uh, many have then thought, well, what he's saying is there is a there is a pure severance between our true nature and everything else, and once we come to realize that, then uh that which we have um, uh, successfully um, uh, transcended or um, severed ourselves from, which is not our true nature then has no value in life and uh, in fact it ceases to be a part of our life so in other words it all uh, vanishes from view as if to say unmanifest consciousness is uh, superior to life as a whole Um, and uh, in other words there's a part of life that is superior to another part of life which is which. Um, is therefore devalued. So, in other words, the world, the universe, even uh, our body, self, our our individuality, all dissolves in the light of liberation. So, I just had a strong feeling that isn't what Patanjali was up to. He wasn't asking us to sever. He was merely asking us to be free from mistaking ourselves from mistaking our true self, our essential nature, for the nature of the functioning of consciousness. And when we do that, then not only do we come free from a suffering self, we become free from a dysfunctioning of consciousness that was holding itself to be the essence. And that created a hell of a lot of suffering (laughs) for oneself and others. So in other words, we were actually mistaking looking for ourselves where our self isn't, as it were. It, It is not merely an activity of the mind, and we normally mistake ourselves for being an activity of the mind. So Patanjali was telling us, hey, don't stop at the activity of mind. Go to the source of the mind. Go to the source of the mind. And then... Uh, experience life from that perspective, and uh, so it, what I began to see as I really looked at the the scriptures and yes, in light of of uh, of practice and personal experience, I began to see that this is all about a subtleization of life. It's not about a an annihilation of the ego or uh, a dissolving away of the body or of a kind of um, bodiless uh, liberation um, whereby uh, the body always implicates us in some kind of spiritual ignorance. No, it's about being free from the mistaken identity of being a separate self. And, uh, being a separate self is not true to our being. And insofar as we're holding ourselves as a separate self, which is merely a functioning of the mind, which we mistake ourselves for, we become attached to thought, we become attached to uh, feelings, we identify ourselves for the things that arise in consciousness rather than knowing ourselves as consciousness itself. And and therefore, that opened up the whole um, perspective on yoga. Uh, Patanjali's main concern is bringing us to that space of freedom and letting the space of freedom speak for itself. Although he's been interpreted as being a dualist, I saw him more rather as, as transcending the dualism of self and world that functions in the side of Prakriti, right? And, and therefore, when that duality that, that is, is based on a sense of self that is not our true nature, trying to attain happiness in this world that it is assuming exists outside of itself, that is what Patanjali was trying to remedy. He was trying to free us from this mistaken identity that doesn't really know what anything is but is trying to be free and happy and know everything based on a a misunderstanding of who one's true nature of what our true nature is and therefore that opened up possibilities uh, for the mind and for the body to become more a in alignment with that source consciousness. And therefore, um, if anything, if if you wanted to see Patanjali still as a dualist, at least it was a, a, a dualism of cooperation rather than a dualism of um, mouth of, uh, how can I put it? It was a cooperative duality. What, what I began to see was more and more The closer you become to your true nature, which registers through our own property, by the way. You don't have to throw away your mind and body. In fact, you have to use the mind and body. You have to allow the mind and body to resonate in their own nature and, and let go of this sense of a separate self that has a mind, that owns a body. And in doing that, therefore, the mind and body become more aligned with a a more superfine kind of space of consciousness, and so that that enters into possibly the field of non-duality, where all is experienced in the light of self. Nothing is outside of consciousness, and I found in my own experience that actually that is true. I I, I really don't think I. Could try to experience anything outside of, of consciousness. <laughs> it it just now this brings up the ethical perspective too, which in other words, our ethics take on the profundity of the very realization of consciousness itself. So consciousness uh, is not without ethics. Uh, you could say that our true being is, is our, our true goodness. And we have to discover that, um, that truth, beauty, goodness are part of the same being. And uh, so yoga works then with a process of refining the body-mind and preparing it for um, simply resting in true being. And in that resting, it can then function in a greater alignment with that consciousness.
1: Why do you think this is particularly relevant at this time?
0: Well, there's so many things um, that, um, that others, in so many ways, both from the most obvious folks who are, you could say, down on the, the pole of uh, human life, they have needs, they need food to eat. Um, why is there not food for them to eat? Um, right up to the, those who seem to have everything but are unhappy. They're, they're seeking. They're still seeking, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, the, name, n- the name of the game is everybody wants to be happy with a capital H. Everyone is seeking happiness. And where is that happiness? So unhappiness is not uh, very pleasant. <laughs> um, no one truly relishes unhappiness. And as much as we can believe that we like, we can't really be unhappy. um, We can only know unhappiness. Unhappiness is a is a state. It's not our being. And there are many things that can make us feel unhappy. And especially, you could say today there there is a um, a greater openness to what the earth needs and the earth needs help right many many people need help through racial discrimination through we've created all kinds of layers of problems in our relating to uh, others in the world um, for all kinds of reasons and that is based on a separate sense of self which sees others as separate from oneself. And that becomes the main problem, which sees, for example, nature as separate. Um, And when that sense of separation starts to, to, the veiling of that separation starts to lose its hold from within, you begin to see that we are all in profound connection and unity or oneness with what we experience, whatever that form is. And therefore, we would only want that to be in a happier space. So it's relevant on all kinds of levels in that it opens us up in whatever our calling to do true service to humanity and to the world that we live in in whatever way we feel called to do. And it gives us the inner conviction, um, a sense of knowing that the nature of our being is love, and that love expresses itself compassionately, and it also can express itself in celebration with life in ways that we can honor life and celebrate. But especially today, You could say that um, we can empathically identify with the sorrow of others, and we also have to act on that empathic identification compassionately. And um, so uh, this gives one the inner strength and um, a a true identity uh, that is connected to the whole. I call it the yoga of the whole, and a yoga of the whole that includes everything in life. And there's a lot of catching up to do, as it were, a lot of um, uh, facing a lot of pain, allowing pain to be experienced, and being able to have, find an inner space that can allow pain to arise and be felt and knowing that you are experiencing this pain you're feeling this pain but that you are that in which the pain is arising rather than you are just the pain and i think being able to pass that on to other folks um, can help them everyone needs to grieve through loss Uh, that's those are very real human emotions but to be able to experience the greater sense of integrity in life, the full connection and the, 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 the ethical connection with others that is so profound, um, the more we can realize our true nature from within, the more we are, are given that capacity to do that and to, for the benefit of all, for the benefit of all, all life everywhere in whatever form it is. That, of that I'm absolutely convinced.
1: When you refer to um, allowing for the experience of suffering, but also um, 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 experiencing it from a distance as it were, creating space, uh, what comes to mind is the idea of witnessing. What comes to mind is the parable of the two birds in the tree in the Upanishads, the one that's eating the sweet fruit, rejoicing, eating the sour fruit, recoiling; the rejoicing, recoiling, Raga and Vesha. And then there's this other bird who's not so much a bird brain who is looking on witnessing. Is this the sense?
0: Yes. And, and the, 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 the two aspects of, of the same being, there are two aspects of the same being. There's not, a, there's not a, an ultimate duality there. And so the question is um, how, how to live with both. Um, how can one be, be free? And also be um, responsible for what one is witnessing. Um, it's not just about a transcending witnessing that is therefore free and therefore is indifferent to the things of the world. Um, but we're somehow very conditioned into um, having an aversion to feeling pain or that which uh, doesn't feel right and and trying to numb it or uh, not come in touch with it, or to avoid it, and it seems to me that there is an aspect of yoga that hasn't been given um, a proper, a real proper look at, and that is the aspect to actually allow deeper meditation and samadhi. To, in other words, to have samadhi with suffering, to allow suffering to arise, and to be able to not react to it. I'm talking about in one's mm-hmm. own self first, mm-hmm. to allow a sense um, in yogic terminology. Of course, Patanjali is always, he's always reminding us that no matter where we think we're at in our spiritual sadhana, there will always be, uh, or we're always prone to samskara, to the past, as it were, coming up, and uh, a sense of separate self. In other words, samskara then is somehow in relation to being a separate self, whereby we're scarred in certain ways and not free, say, emotionally, or not free um, conceptually, not free to fully engage in life. So we have to allow these uh, samskaras and the, the feelings, Of the past to arise. And uh, what are those feelings? Uh, They're nothing but a a kind of modulations of consciousness. And this can be experienced. So when you can experience anything that arises in consciousness and stop labeling them good or bad, negative or positive, allow them to arise and just experience them, let them come. Close rather than don't push them away, don't feel that oh, I wish something else were going on. You can actually experience samadhi with your own sense of suffering, whereby you become free from the separate self. And when you're free from the separate self, that suffering then no longer has a hold on your consciousness and you're free then to act, to remedy that suffering. And what you start to see more is by locating it in yourself and being responsible for it, you're able to see it in others and you can help others for them to see that in themselves. Uh, So we mistake ourselves often for the feelings, Uh, however painful, however pleasurable, and we get caught up because feelings are always fleeting. So what I'm saying is there's a yoga that deals with the emotional life uh, that meet, can meet uh, head-on our emotional life. It's not about you know, uh, running away from emotion and jump, jumping into some transcendent witnessing space, but allowing our witnessing to remain with whatever feelings arise and and, uh, seeing the true nature of what that feeling is. And the true nature of the feeling then will reveal itself as being nothing but consciousness itself and the capacity to respond as consciousness. So there's a great teaching there in whatever arises in our consciousness. We start to see that the real, the real deep, deepest possible meaning of guru is that which is never separate from oneself. And that that guru or that space of knowing awareness is, is always giving us what we need to learn in, in, in any minute, in any, any moment of, of time. And um, having known a few guru uh, persons in my life, uh, I was grateful enough to know that that's what they always told me too. And they said that their function was to enable um, those their students to realize this for themselves and not to follow them, but to realize this for themselves. And uh, that's the real meaning of guru. So um, we need to, uh, in, in a sense, um, we need more gurus in that sense, you know, uh, who who can be can be a light to themselves and also then be a presence for others um, so that others may shine more in their true nature and be truly happy. And that can spread like wildfire.
1: Thank you for your words of wisdom today. Is there anything else that you wanted to well, share? Well, thank you for um, well, I
0: think that that there's uh, there's lots of room um, for manifesting more opportunity. Uh, 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 more okay, um, yeah. It's one one thing I'm very uh, excited about, and that is to be able to present yoga perhaps you know so that it fits more into the bigger picture of people's lives rather than just some some kind of practice. Um, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century in India, mystic yogis Sri Bindo, said someone asked him what yoga was, and he said, "All oh, life is yoga." And so he's not reducing life to yoga. Uh, but what he's saying is, what when you really look at yoga, it's nothing but that which truly is, and that is consciousness and existence, and how that can manifest um, a uh, a truly authentic uh, life of great integrity, and so um, I see uh, I look forward to being able to uh, communicate these ideas and share that space with as many folks as possible and uh, thank you raj for for being such a an insightful um, person who is able to see the value of these uh, traditions and and Help to give a um, um, a space uh, for helping others to come in touch, in touch with this. Thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. So we'll post your affiliations and your links in the podcast notes. Notes uh, for those of you listening. We have been speaking with Dr. Ian Witcher who is a professor in the Department of Religion at the University of Manitoba. We've been speaking with him about his work on yoga and his work with yoga. He's both a scholar and a practitioner. And uh, we hope that you have found this discussion of yoga um, an enriching aperture into the abyss of life wisdom. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, take care, and keep contemplating the meaning of life.